Hello and welcome to the 46th episode of Curiosityness. And this is a really fun episode because I have on one of the biggest cruise ship designers ever, like literally the architect, interior designer, designer of cruise ships, uh, Joe Farkas. He's designed and been involved with nearly 50 cruise ships, and it's crazy. It was extremely fun to talk to him, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode because we just kind of go through his career and how he got started and his philosophy of designing ships and there's just so much that goes into it. It's really fun to hear him talk about this stuff. And, uh, you know, we talk about crazy huge projects that didn't happen, like the uh, the Pinnacle Project, which we'll talk about, which uh, had a people mover on the ship. And uh, we talk about what's next and the future of cruise ships and everything like that. So it was really fun for me. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here is Joseph Farkas. And boom, we're on. What's up, Joe? Hi. How you doing, Travis? Doing good. Excited to talk to you, man. It's it's cool. I I literally every morning I go for a walk, take my dog for a walk. I live in Long Beach here by LA. Oh really? And um I see, so you, see you know the Queen Mary a lot. See the Queen Mary? Oh yeah. And then but always like parked right next to the Queen Mary is uh is a carnival ship and I see your you know, your smokestack design every morning. <laughs> wow yeah it's cool and i think they're like um i think i read that because the uh old spruce goose uh dome is there i think that carnival bought that for as their new port or something like that here yeah i don't know yeah something like that but uh yeah man it's cool you're you're the guy who designed all the ships it's crazy how much you've done yeah i read i got your book here design on the high seas just went through that mm-hmm. which is super fun beautiful book Thanks. by the way the photos are awesome Thanks. and everything it was a real project. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, but yeah, it's it's awesome to see everything compiled like that, and you know, kind of the evolution of your career. So, I mean, let's let's start with the uh, you know, kind of the just a quick little story on how the smokestack design of of all the uh, ships happened because it's it is super iconic, but you know, not everyone was didn't they didn't really believe it at first, huh? Well, it was a. Um... You know, just one of those things, you know, and anything that is new and different, uh, always think, you know, there's always naysayers and so forth. And uh, the uh, it started, the story started for me before that I long before I designed the funnel, actually, uh, we uh, I was on board my first cruise uh, with the Carnival and I uh, Ted Arison, the the founder and owner of Carnival Cruise Lines invited me to go because I was working for another architect at the time, Morris Lapidus, but I was the project manager of um, converting the what was the Queen Anna Maria into Carnival's second ship, the Carnival. Uh, when I say convert, it was a, um, a seat of your pants <laughs> uh, project that we did. <laughs> I hired people, had them on board. I worked with the tools myself. And uh, anyway, we got this, this what was a rusty, saggy, stinky uh, old passenger ship, and we converted it into the Carnival, which was a extremely successful ship for, for Carnival and paved the way for the next and the next and so on and so on. So anyway... Uh, one day, one night after dinner, actually, I was walking on the upper deck with, uh, Ted Arison mm-hmm. and we were just, you know, talking and, uh, we came to a point on the, on the deck near the funnel and we both leaned against the railing and we were both looking up at the funnel and, uh, and, and finally he said to me, uh, he said, you know, the funnel is not just a, uh, a hallmark of the cruise line, but it has to be functional. Mm-hmm. Function being, you know, we're seeing the smoke coming out of it, and the smoke is not some benign uh, soot that flies away. It is, in fact, uh, condensate of uh, fuel oil that has been burned. Mm-hmm. And smoke falls onto the deck, it uh, builds up, and of course, you've got tar on the deck essentially that has to be cleaned, and it's a real pain in the ass. If, it, if the funnel isn't designed in a way to eliminate the smoke hitting the deck. So put that in my pocket. And uh, a couple of years later, when 
we were planning Carnival's fourth ship, but first new building, the, the uh, Tropical, uh, we were we were working with a shipyard in Japan, uh, Kawasaki uh, Heavy Industries, who had uh, done the work on uh, creating Carnival's third ship, the uh, TSS Festival. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so w- this was our first experience. I had no experience with uh, n- new buildings. I had some experience with working with the shipyard in Japan. And we were producing a specification, myself, the naval architects, the shipyard, and uh, people from uh, Carnival Cruise Lines. Anyway, um, uh, Ted came from a um, a ship-owning family and had a real appreciation for uh, the icons of uh, shipping. Mm -hmm. And was very concerned about uh, the funnel because he, he... wanted something that was distinctive. It said Carnival Cruise Lines, was functional, and would be, you know, something that people could easily identify and, uh, you know, respond to. So the naval architects had submitted several designs to him, none of which he liked. And so one day he asked me, he said, Joe, why don't you take a shot at uh, designing this funnel? Mm -hmm. So I said, sure, why not? And, um, so uh, at some point in the meetings in uh, Kobe, uh, the discussion went into the technical aspects of the engine room and what type of engines and so forth and so on. So I really had very little to contribute to that conversation. So I began thinking about uh, the request that Ted had made about designing a funnel. And then I fell back and remembered our conversation on the carnival. So I began thinking and thinking and, you know, working with my sketch. Uh, by the way, Ted tried to sketch something for me when he asked me, but it was a, a series of squiggle lines that meant nothing. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, but, you know, my job was to create something. And uh, so I began thinking about it. And uh, I began thinking of another sort of love or interest in my life, aircraft. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was thinking about... Uh, how a plane flies. You know, it flies by virtue of what they call lift, where an airfoil shape moves moves through the wind, and by curving the top surface and having the, ba- the bottom surface flat, it creates a, a difference in velocity of the wind f- uh, going over this thing and creates actually a vacuum on top of the wing, and that's what lifts a plane. Huh. So I thought maybe this principle could be adapted to... Uh, the funnel, my thinking is the funnel's moving through the air rather than the smoke coming out the top. Let's eject it from the sides, create a, an airfoil shaped wing on top of it and uh, see what that does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So sounded good to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, came back to Miami and uh, Ted Harrison was going to have a birthday party and they invited uh, me to go to it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make a model of um, of my idea for a funnel and bring it to him. As a matter of fact, where's that model? Huh. It's usually sitting right over there. I was going to show it to you, but I don't see it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it sailed away, apparently, without my knowledge. Anyway, uh, so I... Uh, made a model about, I don't know, this tall, eight inches tall, mm-hmm. made it out of wood, carved it, and uh, created the uh, the wing funnel that you see today and painted it in the uh, carnival's livery adapted to uh, this shape and gave it to Ted at his birthday party, and he loved it. He thought that was just the greatest thing, and we uh, and we put it into the specifications for the shipyard to to bid on it to make it part of the contract for building the ship. And uh, so, uh, lo and behold, the uh, contract didn't go to the Japanese. It went to a shipyard in Denmark, Alborg Werft. And uh, so, my funnel was in, and, uh, you know, the shipyard finally got the contract, and they uh, went to Ted afterwards and said, look, um, you know, you've got this funnel that's been designed. It's not going to work. It's very expensive. And we would like to give you a credit to put on, you know, a real naval architect design funnel that'll work perfectly. So they proposed a just a very tall, straight funnel, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, with a little uh, splay to it, you know, with smoke coming out. And uh, and Ted was a businessman, you know, and then and, and the carnival was 
you know, not a financial powerhouse at that moment. So it was tempting to accept that offer. But Ted really loved it. And uh, he said, OK, well, let, I'll consider it. And but, you know, the proof of the pudding will be uh, a test, a wind tunnel test. And uh, so that's what we did. We went to a lab in Copenhagen. They built a model of the ship, which was, mm, I'm going to say, about four feet long. Mm-hmm. And a very accurate model, and they created an accurate funnel and in the right shape, and they had pipes coming out of it as the exhaust would actually come out of the engine. It just doesn't come out of a airfoil shape. It's actually pipes coming up. And it's put on the model, and then the smoke is pushed through these pipes and ejected out the sides and tested under various wind conditions. And there's little intakes on the hull of the ship that can measure any smoke that is taken in. So the uh, the competition was put my funnel on. They put the then they did the test in all various wind conditions, following uh, head, side, etc. And uh, of course, my funnel won hands down. <laughs> yep. And so that was the end of the argument, and that's how it went. And uh, so that carried through, and. Um, uh, later on, maybe, I don't know, 20 years later, I had to redesign the funnel in a shorter version to fit on a one of the newer Carnival ships that had an extra deck. And so the funnel had to be a bit shorter to allow it to go under certain bridges and certain ports. Mm-hmm. So I had to redesign it, and I did redesign it. And this time the laboratory was in uh, Vienna, and we went there and they did the you know very similar test, only there was no competition. And after the test of the various wide you know, conditions, the, uh, the uh, uh, owner of the lab, the engineer, came to me and he said, I want you to know that this was the best funnel we have ever tested in this lab. And the second best was my previous funnel <laughs> that was a little bit high. Oh, my so gosh. Very uh, gratifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Long funnel story. <laughs> right. No, it's so cool how, like, literally, you know, you, you have built this beautiful funnel, this this design, but it, it has to work better too. It has to literally oh, work. Oh yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. If it doesn't if it doesn't work, then as you know, being an architect, you um, or my belief and philosophy is you designing is an art, mm-hmm. but it's an art with function. You can't if you separate function from art. Well, be an artist, be a sculptor, be a painter, you know, whatever, but don't be an architect because an architect that has to do, it has to work, whether it's space, you can't force people to do something because it's architecturally wonderful. You can still think, make things architecturally wonderful and still function properly where people can move through things, smoke can come out of smokestack or, you know, any number of things. It just makes it harder. But that's, you know, that's a challenge. That's not uh, a limitation. Mm-hmm. Totally. And yeah, that t- I love how, you know, in your book, this comes across a lot where you and, and Ted sort of have developed this relationship and trust where he would, you know, he, it was tempting for him to take that credit on that, on the, for the foil, but you know, he trusted you and liked the design and, and went ahead with the test to see what was better, which I really like it. It seemed like a very logical step. Mm-hmm. Um, rare. Rare. <laughs> yes, for, for sure. You know, it's, it's understandable, but very cool to see. Um, but then, I mean, so, so you, you know, your design, you were always interested in design, um, right. kind of moved to Miami and, and you kind of start to first see cruise ships and everything, but you just went to, you went to colleges for just kind of a standard, you know, architecture career. Like, like at that point, cruise ship design wasn't really ever on your radar. Definitely not. Had no, no idea that it would, uh, that that would sail into my world or I would sail into it, let's say. But it was something that I was always interested in because of, I think if you recall in the book, I mentioned the, the first book I ever bought when I was about 15 years old or so to uh, a, a sort of how to draw book. The book was called How to Draw Merchant Ships. Mm-hmm. So I was always interested in airplanes, ships, cars, Things of that, you know, things of transportation, you know, boys, I guess, are somehow, mm-hmm. if I can say this, uh, inclined to go after. Not that they're not women that go after those things, especially these days. Uh, used to be, by the way, when along those lines, when I first started working in shipping, the only women involved were secretaries here and there. By the time I retired in 2014, I would say at least half of the architects, engineers, and, and technical people from the shipyards were women. 
And uh, it, was, it was great. It was, you know, it was it seemed just natural and it, it worked really, really well. Nice. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and then you kind of you're, you know, you go through architecture school and then you get this job at uh, Lapidus, right, which eventually uh-huh. they kind of get the um, get the gig to kind of remodel Carnival's second ship. Mm-hmm. And it, it's in it's you're kind of you kind of come in at a time where cruise ships as they are today didn't really exist. You kind of mentioned that, you know, mm-hmm. before ships were really just for transportation. And Correct. now it was kind of maybe an industry shift to being more of a, a leisurely thing. So um, and even at first you were just remodeling existing ships, huh? Yeah. Well, it was this this actually was the genius of Ted Harrison and his brilliance in foreseeing the the need for this. There were cruise ships when I began working that were, you know, basically dedicated to to cruising. In fact, Ted Harrison really uh started uh Norwegian Caribbean line with oh. um uh, New Kloster, I think his name was. And uh but it wasn't they they worked with a uh what was called a, a passenger ferry that this boat that was a ship that was built uh, by by uh, Norwegian and Ted began to uh, uh, he foresaw the market for cruising he foresaw that that it would be an amazing and great uh, vacation alternative for middle class people you know people you know previously uh, the, the the profile of people who took a cruise were basically two criterion old and wealthy, mm-hmm. and of course had time on their hands, and of course that is not typical uh, profile of you know the average American. Right. And so his idea was to create a product that people could have fun on, you know, w- go for the experience uh, for it rather than going to see Nassau or, or uh, Kingston or something like that. Uh, that's part of it, but but the onboard. Uh, Activity and experience was the number one thing. And that's what he entrusted me. That's what he instilled in me to do. And I, you know, of course, I believe I took it to the next level. I mean, I I made it so that the experience really was everything. The ports of call were icing on the cake. You know, the fact of the matter is, you, you know, in the old days, you know, People sat in deck chairs, drank bullion, and read books, or played uh, bridge or, or gin or whatever they played. And 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 occasionally there'd be a, a crude talent show. Uh, of course, there was always drinking and eating. Right. So, but it's not a. It was not a uh, the an experience that most people would like. You know, w- would have. And uh, you know that was Ted's vision, and and he chose me to uh, you know to breathe life into that uh, that idea and I, and that's where I um, began working with under a philosophy that I ultimately called entertainment architecture a few years uh, after working on it and being asked a question by a writer it just struck me that you know that that's what that's really what it was you you uh, you know I, I relate my uh, in the book uh, my analogy of uh, movies uh, movies being a, you know, especially at that time before the internet and so forth and, and, uh, cable TV and satellite TV, um, number one, I would say, uh, entertainment option for most people uh, on a regular basis was going to a movie. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know, what, what is, what, what, what's the experience of a person going to the movie? First, you have the idea you want to go to a movie and be entertained. Okay. You get in your car, get on a bus. Well, however you get to the theater, you go to the theater, you buy a ticket, you go in, you go to the candy counter, maybe you buy some popcorn or whatever. You go to your seat, the auditorium darkens down and the light comes onto the screen. The, the movie starts and, and that's the magic. And this is what I wanted to capture. People are sitting in their dark seat, solitary, watching this action up on the screen with glamorous people, exciting people, scary people, whatever, mm-hmm. but getting in. And I always thought to myself that most people, consciously or unconsciously, would think to themselves, boy, wouldn't it be great if I were up there rather than sitting in this dark auditorium alone in my seat? And uh, this is what I've, you know, this is what I've always put in the back of my mind to be the point of view of the uh, customers or passengers on board one of my ships. I wanted them to feel like they were in the movie. 
I wanted them to feel like they were, in a way, the star of the movie, and uh, and and they could they could participate. They could write their own script because the program was such on board a ship that you could do this or that. You had choices. You had choices where to eat, what to do, uh, what to drink, and so forth. And um, you know, I thought I I thought this would be great. So it works for extroverts who want to be out there in front of everybody else, and works for introverts who sit down in a chair with their drink and watch the extrovert, and, and so <laughs> forth. And uh, and it was a, it was a uh, philosophy that really worked and continues to work, in my opinion. Oh yeah, totally. You really talk about the, you know, how you consciously design spaces for somebody to just kind of sit and hang maybe by themselves or with a small group and for somebody to, you know, get involved and be kind of the center of attention and stuff, which it really is extremely smart and makes a lot of sense. Um, Sure. Plus you have the entire service crew who are there to, you know, make your wish come true, so to speak. Uh, I mean, it's not perfect, but it, but it, you know, it, it's an environment that only really rich people get to. You know, when you go to the finest hotel or some special place, you know, where the service is great and so forth. Well, for a very you know reasonable price, you can enjoy that level of service on board a cruise ship. Yeah, very true. Even and it, in, even in the old days. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so true how it's really totally immersive and like you never have to wash a dish, you never have to make your bed, nothing. It's like total luxury. Well, yeah, it, it, of, of a sort, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's not it's not exactly heaven on earth, but for a vacation, it's really, you know, it's it's it, you have to be a real stuck in the mud, a real curmudgeon to not enjoy a cruise. Uh that that's my opinion. I don't care what cruise line you're on and so forth. Uh you know, the fact of the matter is that virtually all of the cruise companies have come along to some sort of a, a, a concept of entertainment architecture in, in, in the designs, you know, whereas in the, you know, in the days when I first started and, and for, you know, for at least a decade after that, uh, most cruise lines were doing pretty much the same ship, white, a lot of white, very laid back and uh, understated is one of my favorite words to criticize with uh, when I feel like being snarky. And uh, and uh, and they were all the same. I mean, you know, you could be on this ship, you could be on that ship. It was all the same. Fine. And, you know, it was, it was a good product. It succeeded and so forth. But it wasn't to me where the... Um, the real action was the real, you know, the, if you want to touch people, you want to, um, you know, give them something that exceeds what the advertisement said. You know, you, you want people, it's interesting. Um, Kathy Lee uh, Gifford was the spokesperson for Carnival for many years, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for, I don't know, I guess about 10 years. And, uh, this is when Carnival started doing their first TV ads and uh, Kathy Lee, who's still on television today, um, was the spokesperson and, and, and the, and the basic, um, commercial was Kathy Lee sitting on board in one of the lounges singing with real passengers and everything around them. So that what the ad was on TV, when you went on board one of those ships, even though Kathy Lee might not have been there, what you were seeing was exactly what happens. And, you know, that's great. You know, when you spend your money and so many times, you know, you, you feel like, oh, well, it wasn't exactly what I thought it would be and so forth. And, uh, you know, so I think we had a real truth in advertising. There was a great synergy within the company. Uh, I didn't work directly for Carnival. They were my client. We were contract to contract. But, you know, I knew everybody. Everyone knew me. And, and we, you know, we really... It, it was a magical synergy, I got to say, that that we all somehow signed on to the same program and I think created a great product. We took a company that had nothing that uh, on their first cruise of the Mardi Gras, they had a they, they ran out of money in Nassau. They had to open the cash register to take money out to buy fuel in Nassau. Oh, and, that, and then now it's, you know, this huge multi-billion dollar powerhouse in the uh, entertainment industry and the leisure industry. So, um, you know, something worked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's and it's cool how you were there from you know nearly the beginning, and you kind of designed these ships with them as they grew for their new new things that they wanted. Um, one thing that I found it, that you know I wanted to ask you about that I was curious was kind of the 
you know, your first, I think your first three ships were, they bought, you know, an, a pre-existing, you know, used ship that was then converted right. to be a cruise ship. Right. And then after that, they started building, basically building their own ships from the ground up. What right. is kind of the, you know, maybe challenges with working with a pre-existing ship or maybe kind of the challenges of, you know, also not having, you know, just kind of having a blank, you know, slate. Sure, sure. Well, of course, that's the $64,000 question. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, if you're an architect, you deal with reality. You deal, you know, you, again, there's a set of givens and you work with it. The uh, the first two ships that I, that I worked on, the Mardi Gras Carnival's first ship, although not so much, the Carnival, which is a second ship, were, as you suggested, uh, old ships. They, But more than old ships, they were really built as liners. They were built to take people from uh, Canada or uh, to Europe and, and back and so forth. And uh, so... They had, you know, there was, you, we were very limited in what you can do because there was, you know, unless you're willing to rip the whole ship apart and, and uh, start over again in a way, and Carnival didn't have the money to do it. But we, you know, again, especially on the Carnival, we, we made it a very, um, a very good entertainment platform where people could just you know, seamlessly worked through the ship. They weren't, there were no mysteries on where to go. There was no confusion. It was a well, it was well laid out ship for, for, you know, or, we, or let's say that we took full advantage of what was there and made it really good. The third ship which was an old ship was the Festival, but there we did the job in the shipyard and we were able to do a huge amount of structural work. So uh, that gave us, uh, the, the Festival was a, a passenger cargo ship. Uh, it's tra it's uh, it, um, it traded between uh, England and South Africa back and forth. And one of the big, <laughs> which was kind of funny, it had a, uh, you know, ships have tanks for ballast and fuel and so forth. This ship had a huge wine tank that they filled with South African wine <laughs> to England and then drained it out and, and bottled it, you know, because that made the, the duty less to have it not in bottles. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, we were able to, you know, get rid of cargo hatches, uh, add a lot of superstructure and, and make a really great ship. In fact, I, I arguably would say it was the first modern cruise ship. It really uh, it, it it began to gel on me what a cruise ship was, what people wanted to, uh, or maybe not wanted to do, but would do. You know, again, you can't shove a square peg into a round hole. You know, you've got to understand what shape the the the, the peg is to put it in the right hole. And uh, and and I seem to be able to get that. And I think growing up on Miami Beach. A tourist town really helped me with that. I, I inherently, since I was nine years old, was always around tourists, you know, and you, and uh, and tourist facilities. Uh, I even worked uh, when I was sixteen at one of the hotels, cleaning the pool, and really got to see, you know, what people do. So it was sort of in my blood to to understand what people want to do, especially in a sun and fun type uh, environment, which of course a cruise ship is right. most most cruises. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so that gave me the ability. Then then when we did the first new ship, which was a Tropical, um, there we had to lay out the whole ship. So basically what we did was, and I didn't have a lot of experience at that time. And, you know, you, you know, you got to have you got to get up high to see the horizons and the experience is the ladder to get you up to heights. And I didn't have a lot of experience in ships at that moment in time, but but I had some. But anyway, we did the, the, the what we call a general arrangement plan, GAP, uh, for that ship, and it was basically modif a modified version of what the Carnival was, or even or even the festival. It was very, you know, uh, it was retro in the layout respect. Uh, for example, the main restaurant we put in the center of the ship on a lower deck. Now that's a leftover from liners when they're, you know, when you cross the ocean, there was a lot of pitching and rolling and the, the place physically on the ship where that pitching and rolling would have the least effect is lower to the water and the center of the ship. So that's what we did and had no windows mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and basically the ship had two promenades. So it was a, a newer version of an old ship. Right. Uh, and then then, you know, once I saw that, you know, I began to realize, you know, this this is kind of stupid. You know, why? 
you know, why look backwards to design a new ship? Mm-hmm. So from then on, we began to uh, have uh, more vision and were, it was able to, um, you know, develop a GAP that uh, more suited the type of uh, experience I wanted to create on board the ship and, and, and the, uh, the owners, too. And um, so that allowed us to develop these ideas into uh, newer ships, uh, newer, newer designs. Probably the first uh, three ships after the Tropical were somewhere in between the old design and the new design. And then when we started the, uh, the new class, the fantasy class of ships, uh, there's where I put in the atrium, where I put in you know big windows and wanted people Excuse me. When they came on board the ship, uh, I didn't want them to feel as they did on the old ships that they were coming in this little hole in the side of this huge ship and they had no idea where they were. Right. And, and I, I so I saw that door as a kind of a barrier. And uh, I, I introduced the atrium because I wanted to, I wanted people to feel when they got to this little door that it wasn't a barrier. In fact, it was a, a vacuum cleaner, a magnet to just suck you in. And there you were in this amazing space. You could see all the decks above you. There was a skylight above. You could see the sky. You had a feeling immediately internally of the size of the ship and where you were. And... You know, one of the favorite things I, I ever I, I enjoyed in, in seeing people come aboard a ship, especially a new one, is that look of awe that comes in people's faces. And out come the cameras and they take the pictures and, and so forth. And uh, they know immediately that they're in a special place that has been designed for. So then, you know, then uh, as things progress, you, you know, you get more and more experience. You have more ideas, more technology, newer things, uh, newer functions. Uh, again, worked very well with the, the restaurant people, the entertainment people in Carnival Cruise Lines and, you know, uh, was constantly trying to upgrade everything to make it work and still have it as a viable financial project, which was, you know, that was a real skill that I developed in, in working with the shipyard and allowing uh, to create the things I wanted to do, not go over budget, not, you know, not increase the cost of the ship with extra costs and so forth. And uh, for sure, that was a, uh, you know, a great point in them keep giving me ships to do, almost 50 ships in uh, well, some 1977 to 2014, all those years, about 40 years, and, mm-hmm. and allowed me to do whatever the hell I wanted to do, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that's, it must be so fun. But so what, when you're kind of given a, when you're, when Carnival's going to build a new ship and they they come to you, what do you start with? Do they say, you know, it's going to be about this size, this many decks, or what are you, what, what are you given to work with? Um, I think they have, they, they have an idea of how many passengers they want, you know, uh, on board and, and therefore how many cabins need to be on board. Mm-hmm. And we know that, you know, uh, there, there's a, an idea of the cost of the ship. So I work with, uh, with the shipyard naval architects in, uh, in creating a layout of the ship that, that, uh, that produces the type of, uh, environment that I want for the experience of people on board, how they move through the ship, what they see the, you know, how they go from this bar to the restaurant, how they go from the atrium to the, the uh, club restaurant on top of the ship. All these things are very important. You know, you don't want People, you don't want people to find it hard to use the ship. You want it to be easy to use. That it's that it doesn't require, uh, not not that it doesn't require thinking, but it doesn't require annoyances on your part. Uh, and uh, you know, there's always some. You know, at certain times, people line up to go to dinner and so forth. But if you design the spaces properly, you minimize all that. You minim, minimize the, the annoyances. Mm-hmm. So it's a back and forth process with the shipyard with. Ted Arison, Lady Mickey Arison, you know, creating these uh, uh, spaces and working on projects. Uh, the, um, the, 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 you know, the first big new ship, the, the, fest, the, the fantasy that I talked about with the first atrium, the carnival had big atrium. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Ted had given out, you know, a, a sort of instruction to all uh, uh, a letter, you know, saying we want to build a new ship, we want it to be the greatest, and we want to, you know, a real let's see what you can do sort of idea. And yeah. uh, and 
And so we, you know, he, he passed the ball and we ran with it and uh, and uh, worked back and forth with, uh, you know, the naval architects and the various departments at Carnival and um, and created something great. Uh, one interesting example I can use is uh, when, when we began to do uh, des des design the GAP for the Spirit class of ship, which was... Um, uh, a little bit smaller ship, but the idea being to, you know, to, again, take the next step, progress. One of the problems that, uh, that the layout of the previous ships had was the, uh, there were two restaurants, a forward restaurant and an aft restaurant, and they were two decks high. And the galley was in between the two on the lower deck. So to get to the restaurant on the upper side, it was easy to just walk so, you know, midship on the ship and you'd go in the the forward restaurant and then you could just keep going and enter the uh, aft restaurant. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the main level was one deck below where the galley was. So there was no way for a passenger to walk directly into the uh, aft restaurant on the uh, on on the main deck of the restaurant. And uh, so I had the idea that instead of doing two restaurants and instead of creating a barrier with the galley, let's let's do a two-deck restaurant, but one big one on the aft end of the ship, and we'll put the galley below the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Now, first people gasped at that because it was different. You know, it was like, well, the galley has to be right on, you know, waiters have to go right out. But I had a, an ace in the hole, and the ace in the hole was – on the previous ships, we had the galley in between the two restaurants. The service to the second level was by escalator. The waiters had to go up by escalator and serve. So they already knew that that worked. So if it worked for one deck, why not for two decks? Right. And that's exactly what we did. And that was a huge um, progress in the, in the layout of the ship. We were able to, that opened up a lot of other possibilities to, uh, you know, to create a, um, uh, an easier for ship to, for people to get around more, more, um, uh, more dramatic in, in entrances and spaces and so forth. And, uh, you know, so uh, as time went on and I had more experience and the new project came along, you know, when you're doing a, a sister ship, like for example, the fantasy, we built eight fantasy type ships. So you, you can't, do major changes in the GAP because the, you know the price is a, a repetitive job, but the the repeat was only in the GAP. The, the des interior designs of all the spaces were completely different on the ship. Mm -hmm. And uh, but when it came to do a new project like the Carnival Spirit class, then you're able. We were able to do what it wanted to do and create something really, really nice. In fact, for me, it was absolutely the best laid out ship of any of them. So we had the uh, the uh, Carnival had a think four of those and Costa built about four of those also in, you know, in that basic way, it was some changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is you were, you know, you were involved with all the, the layout and design and everything, but then you were, you were mainly in charge of the interior design and the look of everything inside too. Correct. Yeah. 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 That was it. That was the whole thing. I mean, we even designed the carpets. Uh, <laughs> I think we didn't design with chairs some, you know, most chairs and fabrics because there's just too much on the market. But the carpets we designed, um, all the details, lightings, especially lighting. Lighting was my forte. Uh, effect lighting, especially, um, you know, that to me brought in the fourth dimension on ships. The, uh, the fantasy had, I don't remember how many miles of neon on board. Uh, that could be, uh, it was the, the world's largest, I think, single neon installation. Uh, I don't know if it was a ship or, or a totally. I mean, it was written up in a book on neon, actually. Uh -huh. But the town wasn't exposed neon for the most part. It was light is uh, three primary colors of light are red, blue, and green. You know, like on a TV set, the monitors we're looking at right now, the pixels are red, red, blue, and green. And from those mixing those three colors, you can create any color. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this applied in in lighting too. So I had all of these neon coves with red, blue, and green neon parallel to each other, which can were mixed by a computer. 
so the computer could make these light coves red, they can make them blue, they can make them purple, they can make them light, anything, and create different environments. So you go into, uh, let's say, into the through the atrium lobby into see a show at the theater, and when you went in, the atrium was blue, and when you came out, it was pink or or green or orange or what you know whatever the program was. Yeah. So it, it, it what that did for me is. It helped alleviate the concept of, of being bored and getting used to your environment, you know, because things always changed. And uh, to me, again, that was a very fundamental uh, part of uh, creating the experience on board for people. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, I, that was when I, you know, began to understand that you did were responsible for like all that. That was just mind blowing to me. I always figured there were huge teams of people that were responsible for everything, but this whole ship was like your baby. You you were doing the whole thing. It's just mind blowing, crazy. Yeah, well, for the first, um, I don't know how many years, many years, it was just myself and my wife, and she's not a, an architect. She, but she helped me with the business end of it. She helped me seeing uh, people selling fabric and other materials and so forth. She knew what I liked. She got a art, artistic background uh, in art history, uh, and uh, was able to help me. And then eventually, we began doing too much work, and I had to hire someone. I hired a woman, uh, an interior designer from uh, Finland who uh, came, came to Miami to live and work with us. And she was a great help for me. And then we, then we got even more work, and I hired another designer from Finland also. So we had a mostly Finnish office here in Miami and uh, who helped me, you know, especially with drawing. And they designed you know, some of the minor rooms, designed the carpets and things like that, whereas I did the, you know, the really the, what, what I call the concept drawings for basically all the, certainly all the big rooms. Mm -hmm. I would say 90% of the spaces were things that I designed, including picking colors and the materials and so forth and so on. Right. Man. It's a turn job. And that was it. That was us at our biggest. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's that's just incredible. Well, it was incredible to the people in the shipyards, too. But it was great for them because when I, you know, part of my job was to, to um, I won't say supervise, but but work with the shipyard and in developing the construction drawings from my concept drawings of you know what the things should look like and how you know how it should be realized and the construction details and lighting details and all sorts of very very technical things. So and which always ended up as a negotiation because everything had to do with price. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, we, you know, we took a, a design and did modifications and uh, compromises, so to speak, to create what would be the final room in a, in a state that I was happy with and it would not cost any more money. And, and uh, uh, that was a real challenge. But my real strength was that I had the authority and the trust to make the decisions right then and there. I didn't at the, at the uh, you know, at the conference table after a day's meeting, I didn't say, okay, well, this is what we decided. Now I got to go back to Miami and talk to the people, you know, cause that's how most, most of the ships are done. And, uh, and, uh, but you know, they knew in the end of the day, what was done at the end of the day was that's it. There, you know, there's no more. And you, you know, when you're talking about, a, you know, ships that were into the billion dollar level, mm -hmm. uh, Time is money, and time wasted is not only more money, but it's it's something that can't be recovered. You know, uh, and uh, you know that was very very important. And I had the, you know, the responsibility, the trust, and the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, how something I was a little unclear about was how does it work with shipyards, sort of financially? Do they? Do you sort of um, come to them and say, this is basically the ship we want to build, and then you essentially pay them a, a fee for them to build it? Yeah, well, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a construction cost. So let's say today, you know, it's not unusual for a ship to be over a billion dollars. So you sign a contract based on a, a GAP, based on a, a standard specification of materials and finishes and things like that that are based on, you know, usually some other ship. And uh, and and uh, that's you know they write a contract to build the ship, and uh, the contract says that the shipyard will produce this, that, the other thing, all these specifications, and then there's a few things that the owners provide, life vests and other things like that, and uh, and then you, then then the quite often 
um, the shipyard arranges for the financing of that. Uh, sometimes it's through the government, sometimes it's, you know, privately. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's something I'm really not involved in, but I just know it sort of from the outside. And, right. uh, and uh, you know, and it's, it, it, so it's, a, and there's a whole deal on the paper, on the table when, when it's done. When they sign the contract, you, you just move forward. The finances are in place, you know, the money's in place, the deposits are made, and, uh, and, uh, and then there's, you know, payment schedules at various uh, milestones during the construction. Okay, I see. I guess that makes sense. But uh, thanks for clarifying. Um, so, can we talk about the uh, the Pinnacle project now? Because that thing sure. that sure, sure. was awesome. Yeah, just tell us about that and you know, kind of the the idea behind that and what it was. Yeah. Well, again, <clears throat> the idea again came from uh, uh, a directive uh, from Ted and Mickey Harrison of you know building the next, go, taking it to the next level, build the next great ship, yeah. and so forth. So that one, I you know, I just started designing it on my own without naval. I by that time, I felt like I had enough experience that I could do. Uh, a layout of a ship that that would be um, um, practical. You know that I knew that if 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 I get it right, you know Ted Carnival liked it, then you know I could work with the shipyard and we could fit the engine in and the the, the casing and the exhaust pipes and structure and pipes and air conditioning and so forth. And developed a really great ship, which would be, which would have been the largest ship of the world at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I designed, by the way, the the um, the Destiny, the Carnival Destiny, which was our first Carnival ship in Italy. Was the was over a hundred thousand tons? I think it was one hundred three thousand tons. And uh, I was put into the the Guinness Book of Records for being the architect to design the first passenger ship over 100,000 tons. This ship was going to be more like 200,000 tons, maybe a little bit. (laughs) So I, you know, I designed, you know, came up with all of these new ideas and created a, you know, what I thought was an amazing uh, plan. It would have been fantastic instead of one restaurant, two restaurants, we had seven restaurants so people go around. A lot of things that still aren't even being done today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then I always felt that the it, the bigger the ship you do, that you would always be um, open to the criticism of this ship's just too big. There's just too many people on board. You know, mm-hmm. how do you get around, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, so how do you overcome that problem well number one you put on facilities on board the ship that you couldn't have on a smaller ship it just wouldn't make any economic sense and then the um, <laughs> then the uh, idea came to me to alleviate this the getting around the ship uh, issue I created a, uh, a people mover so there was a um, a track along the top of the ship. It was it you know uh, went around the entire ship. That uh, that a you know a, a car that uh, a car that would ride on a rail and would go around the ship with various stops. You know, not unlike things you see at the airport, for example. You know, take people to the car rental place or parking garage or something like that. So, you know, not only would you have the uh, ability to move people around easily and conveniently. But it would be a thrill at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. that view out to sea as you're going around would just be remarkable. And I thought, okay, well, that's good, but but it's not enough. So I made at the uh, at, at a certain point of the ship that the uh, people mover car would come to this stop at, at the upper deck. And that would then be an elevator and take the whole car down to the main passenger deck, which would then allow it to go back and forth, cover the whole main public room deck and then go back, go up and continue the route around. So it was it was a real tour de force and uh, something I think that would have been talked about. And it stemmed from an idea that I had long ago, some sort of roller coaster type ride on the ship on the upper deck, which I thought would be fantastic. And now, uh, as a matter of fact, Carnival's uh, new ship that they just they started building, which since I retired, I'm not involved in, but that's actually going to have the roller coaster on it that I, <laughs> I, I came up with that idea, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. And mm-hmm. it was feasible. I mean, 
You know, the, that, and the, so the Pinnacle Project was designed. It had unbelievable um, big side deck at, at the main public room level where there'd be a, a lazy river ride. There'd be uh, basketball courts. Uh, uh, there was an indoor entertainment area for um, sort of Cirque du Soleil acts, huge um, um, theater again, that had production possibilities that would rival, you know, the best places in Vegas. And even even the smaller entertainment lounge was probably equal to the big lounges we had on previous shifts. <laughs> so it was a real exciting project, and, and it was a real project because then we worked with the shipyard, very good-looking ship. They, I worked with the naval architect uh, designer at Fincantieri, Maurizio Cergo, who was a you know, most naval architects are really engineers, but this guy was a designer as well. I mean, he had that sensitivity to beauty, to shape, to form. And we had an amazing collaboration. The ship was just wonderful. The people at Carnival were nuts about it. Ted was nuts. Mickey was nuts. Even the price looked like it was going to be affordable. But then mm-hmm. the uh, then uh, the Spanish Inquisition came and the, uh, that's, the uh, euro started going up. And the price was based on euros. And that deviation of, I don't know, 15, 20 percent threw the project into the non non-profitable layers. Now, I would have gone ahead with it. But of course, I wasn't the owner and I wasn't a businessman. And they, you know, Carnival, you know, part of their huge success is that they're, you know, financial responsibility. And uh, so that project didn't go ahead. We designed another ship, a little bit lesser of that uh, called the, the uh uh, Project Next Generation, which incorporated some of these ideas plus others, and again, it was just too expensive. By that time, uh, you know, the, the shipbuilding prices are going up and up, and uh, you know, and, and and that continues to this day. Uh, so, uh, it was you know probably the biggest professional disappointment I had in in my shipbuilding career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, it's a shame. <laughs> yeah, totally. Especially because it was so, so almost there, and then for just to not go through because of you know basically something that you can't even control must just be incredibly frustrating. It was incredibly frustrating. Well said. Yeah. And, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's it. Yeah, and there was a really cool. Uh, you guys made a whole kind of digital mock-up of it that's on YouTube, which is really cool to see. Cause it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is exciting. <laughs> Somehow it got pirated out. I don't know how that happened, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it did. Uh, the original version is a little nicer because it's not grainy and <laughs> so forth. But it, right. nevertheless, it was an exciting uh, it was an exciting project. And, uh, you know, the idea was we felt is that, you know, you the key to the growth of cruising has always been bring new people in. People have never cruised before. And I thought, excuse me, I wasn't alone in this thinking, that that uh, having this biggest ship in the world with all these facilities, people mover and lazy rivers and basketball courts and giant slides that were 10 stories high and things, water slides and things like that, you know, that would that would create a buzz. That would create a talk that mm-hmm. that then it would take people and, you know, the wife says to the husband, you know, let's take a cruise. Nah, I don't want to take a cruise. But we can go on this great ship. And so I read about it. And, uh, oh, yeah, that's not a bad idea. And uh-huh. uh, and that's how you grow the market. And um, uh, this is this was Carnival, Ted's belief, Mickey's belief. And, uh, and they, you know, especially in, in the beginning, they never really – try to engender repeat business. Their their goal in their marketing was always to bring in new people. Mm-hmm. You know, belief being that the people that came and enjoyed it would come back again on their own, and that, and that was absolutely the truth. The uh, you know the, cre- the cruising aspect of the leisure industry, I think, has a something like a ninety percent satisfaction rate, which is the highest among any any options in the leisure industry: hotels, all inclusive clubs, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's so cool to see. And especially how, you know, you were making these designs and you were kind of pioneering stuff, I feel like, where, you know, with the, especially with the, you know, roller coaster and things like that, where now those things are starting to come into ships. Sure. You know, things that you were thinking about 10 years ago and 20 years ago, even. Um, so, what do you kind of see as, you know, the future of ships? Are they just going to get bigger and bigger or have they kind of maxed out or, or what kind of stuff are we going to be seeing, do you think? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, 
uh, you know, again, because ships are costlier, the challenge of designing something, uh, you know, relatively costlier uh, is uh, is paramount. And uh, I I had designed a ship, really the last project I designed, I just took it on my own because I had a lot of time uh, at that moment just before my last ship was delivered. And we designed a really great ship, in my view, that, had, that was very efficient. In other words, it had uh, a... a cabin or lower bed ratio to public space higher than, you know, than anything we had ever done. Yet, by virtue of, cre- you know, really creatively laying out spaces and volumes, was able to get all the functions and huge wow factors into the ship, you know, by virtue of space and so forth, that that, that would have overcome the problem of, uh, of uh, you know, in a way less public room for the number of people on board. And it was done by really thinking about, you know, if you're on a cruise ship during the day or night, there are rooms that are being used at some point in time and other points in time, they're not being used at all. Um, and probably most of the time, some, you know, some spaces are not used at all. So how can you therefore um, combine uses or functions and use a less amount of space to have the same amount or even more functions on board and use everything continuously mm-hmm. rather than having, you know, big, big spaces vacant, you know, like the theater on a ship, a uh, huge space, you know, during the day with certain exceptions, bingo or dance lessons or something like that is empty. Yeah. You know, huge ship, huge space on a ship. And, uh, and, and there are ways of overcoming it. And I, I designed a ship like that. But the, the management had changed within Costa and Carnival, and it just, you know, I couldn't couldn't get any traction for the project. So there it sits, <laughs> <laughs> But you know that look, I would be the last person in the world to um, feel bad about what I didn't accomplish because, uh, you know, for me, retirement had been really easy because. I accomplished more than I could have ever even dreamt about when I was, you know, at the University of Florida or when I graduated or even began working as an architect. It, it's just unbelievable. So I had really nothing to prove. And uh, and I didn't need to work anymore to, you know, live the kind of life that I would like to live. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if, you know, if, you know, you, you run up a flag and if someone salutes, you're in. If they don't salute, take the flag down and go home. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's a great. That's I'm sure that's a great feeling. You must be, you know, incredibly proud to see. How do you, how many chips did were you involved with? Do you know the count? Well, in the, you know, certainly around fifty. Uh, you know, about forty six or seven were complete. Uh, you know, either new builds or most of them were new builds, and a couple of major refits, and then a couple of projects like Pinnacle Project and Next Generation, which were never built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, so cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, no one. No one <laughs> That's you know, a lot. Yeah, I have that distinction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Like honestly, I really had no idea that someone like you even existed. Where you just have so much involvement in every aspect of it, and have done so much. It's just, it was really fun to you know stumble upon, across your book and and read the whole story and and talk to you here. So I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time, Joe. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and I appreciate you look taking the schedule. <laughs> oh yeah, of Probably. course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, what an episode. Thanks for sticking around and listening to it. This is Travis again, uh, here on my own. But as a thank you for sticking around, I wanted to give you a free sticker, a free curiosity sticker, 100% free. Don't have to pay for shipping. You don't have to enter your credit card info. It's really free. Uh, to get one, go to curiositynist.com slash free sticker, and it's yours. I'll send it to you right away, and, and you can slap that baby wherever you want to represent Curiositynist. So uh, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Just wanted to give you guys a little gift. Um, so just go ahead and claim that at curiositynist.com slash free sticker. And uh, visit our website too, curiositynist.com. I have an Instagram, Curiositynist podcast. I'm on Instagram too as Trav DeRose, me, Travis, the host. You can follow me if you want. Uh, we're on Twitter, Curiositynist TV is our uh, handle there. We're on Facebook as Curiositynist. 
All the links to this stuff are in the show notes. You can just click on it and follow us if you want to, because I post some cool little clips and and extra stuff that you don't get from the uh, podcast onto social media. So you can join in on that and comment and and talk about me and the show or whatever you want to do. We're on YouTube, too, as Curiosityness. And I have an email address, Travis at Curiosityness.com. Send me an email. Send me your thoughts on the show, suggestions for new guests, tips on things to make the show better and and help me with my interviewing and and get better and everything like that. So uh, constructive feedback is always nice. So send me an email and uh, also reviews super help. Uh, Really appreciate reviews on the show in uh, Stitcher or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever. Um, Just drop a review. That's extremely helpful. You don't even have to make it five stars. You can, you can lower it. Uh, I would prefer a higher one, but whatever, whatever you want to do. I won't coax you into something, Uh, but any sort of review helps. I really honestly do appreciate it. So um, yeah, thank you again, guys, for sticking around and listening to this end blabber with me, but uh, have a good rest of the day. Bye-bye.